Hi, listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everyone left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with bereavement professionals. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Janet Cristofero, and produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. I'm joined today by Kara Jones. Kara is a grieving mother and a heart maker in the lives of grieving people and professionals who work with grieving people. Kara plays a lot of roles in the world of grief. She provides direct service to those with a personal experience of loss through her site, Grief and Creativity, and she also offers continuing education for those in a role of supporting others in grief at the Creative Grief Studio. Welcome, Kara. Thank you, Jana. I'm happy to be here today. As I was going over your introduction and looking through all of the things that you do, I'm I'm wondering what don't you do when it comes to supporting people in grief? Yeah, it came all pretty organically out of our own experiences of grief and, and just kind of evolved. So I've worn lots of hats. <laughs> and for your own personal experience of grief, that began with the, the death of your son. Yes. Um, my husband and I had a full-term, supposedly perfectly healthy pregnancy, um, but my son was then born dead. And so out of his stillbirth, um, you know, as a person and as a family, we sought a lot of support. That was a very unexpected turn of events. So we sought support and got support for a couple of years. And then sort of just, you know, that progression of grief experience that happens I felt a little stronger. I wanted to give back to that community. And so I trained to be a facilitator. And then I was in communication with facilitators all over the country. And we got to talking about creativity and groups that were stuck and what do we do? And and so the continuing education piece sort of evolved out of those conversations, sort of train the trainer kind of thing. And here we are today, you know, and really it's not something, you know, if you had asked me 22 years ago, I couldn't have told you I'd be here today. Right. It's not like you received the news that your son died and said, oh, I forecast this uh, amazing journey of moving into processing my own loss and then bringing that as an offering to the world. Yeah, not at all. I mean, I was doing uh, creative work prior to his death. I was doing work with um, young kids, actually, um, preschool age children. We were doing uh, poetry kind of groups and creative groups with them. And it was really just that after his death, things changed so drastically. I couldn't do that work anymore. It was very hard um, to be in that world of children and families when our family was so drastically affected. And so it was about, you know, coming out of my own grief experience, applying creativity to my own grief experience. And then everything that unfolded um, really brought me to in this place where we are today, doing both of the pieces, supporting other people personally, and then doing the continuing education. I had no idea <laughs> this is where we would be. One of the first things I was really struck by, both in your work and in your writing, is the way that you recognize that grief is this can be this very individual and unique experience, but that we're also grieving in the context of a collective, our community, our family. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little more about that. Sure. Um, There's a wonderful book called Madness and Creativity. And Yulanov writes in that book about 
how we are individuals having experiences, of course, um, but we are always embedded within what she calls kinship systems. And the more I started to explore this, the more I started to realize that uh, we are individuals having our grief experiences, yes. And, and there's uniqueness to those grief experiences for everyone. However, none of us can escape <laughs> the ways we are embedded uh, within you know, our geographic location, our access to support, um, race, class, education, family, community, uh, resources, uh, you know, all of these things um, play a part in how our grief experience unfolds. And that's really not something I was conscious of before our personal experience. A kind of oversimplified example I'll give you is realizing how very embedded we are in this modern Western United States in capitalism. My husband took paternity leave as my son was about to be born. And then I ended up having surgery and he died. Our son died. And my husband then decided to continue taking his paternity leave because I was still recovering from the surgery. And now I was home and we were all grieving. And the first couple of days we were home, the phone rang my husband picked it up in the living room and I picked up the extension and I heard a conversation unfold with his boss, who was an MD, by the way. This man said to my husband, we don't understand why you can't come back to work. It isn't like you brought a baby home or anything. And so that was my first a ton of bricks landing on my head that our grief experiences are embedded in this economic system. Grief has a value or is evaluated in our culture in ways that often doesn't get named. You know, and it brought up a lot of other things. I, I realized that we were pretty lucky. Um, my husband was, it was a decent job. He had decent benefits, uh, had health insurance. So we had access to decent care. But what the benefits they offered were was three days bereavement leave. <laughs> so the grief was worth three days bereavement leave. That's it. And then we can't understand why you won't come back to work. Extending that for me, I've been self-employed and, and working on contract and sort of this sort of gig economy that we live in. We don't even get that <laughs> if you're self-employed. And so just this realization, like we could be aware of it. We could have the ton of bricks fall on our head and then be able to name it, but we can't really get out of it. And so how do we make creative spaces for ourselves and then for the people that we're working with to be able to language these experiences, find names for them? <laughs> it, it makes me think about, I spent a lot of time in group talking with people about how they have these internal senses that their grief is bigger or smaller than someone else's. Like, do I really... Is my grief really valid because this person was not as close to me? You know, I wasn't as close with my dad as this other person who was really close with their dad. Do I still have the right to be grieving in this way? And so often people think like that's just an internal thing that comes from my own sense of self. But to hear you talk, it's like that comes from somewhere. Yeah. That it's reflected and validated in, in our economic system or in our the way our workplaces operate or the way that our... Uh, assistance is provided or not provided to us. Yeah. We, we talk about this in uh, the Creative Grief Studio, the Continuing Education Program. We talk about it as the big book of grief rules. Oh, I love that term. 
Yeah. And so one of the things we do is we help professionals understand that for themselves. And then how does that translate to the people we're working with? Because whether we name it or not, there's a lot of things that run undercurrent, (laughs) a lot of rules, whether we want them or not, in whether they came from thoughts we have internally or they were imposed upon us externally. Um, There's this big book of grief rules that people carry around, and it's not the same for everybody. Right, that some of those rules are implicit, and some of those rules Mm -hmm. are explicit, something that maybe you were, as you were raised, you were growing up, a relative said to you, this is the way we grieve in our family versus maybe something you've absorbed from reading books or watching movies. Yes, exactly. And doing that kind of exploration helps me professionally because it helps me see the blind spots I have. You know, I had a certain space where, okay, I had a stillbirth and this is how it happened for us. And so I thought, well, I could facilitate support group for other stillbirth parents But, you know, what you find out when you get into the situation for real is that your experience was your experience informed by your own big book of grief rules. And what other families come in with um, is not the same. And and that was reinforced for me when we did have a second stillbirth a few years later, that our stillbirth with our second child was completely different experience than the first one. And I thought, wow, if just for me, those two stillbirths were completely different experiences, then I really can't know. (laughs) I I can't. I can't know what's going on for people. What do you think contributed to the second experience being so different? You know, in the second experience, I was already many years into asking for grief support, getting grief support, and then also doing the, the continuing education piece, you know, working with other facilitators. So I think the second experience was very different because when we went to the hospital that time, I was able to very clearly say to hospital staff, I need this. And they did it. The first time around, we went in and everything was so unexpected. I didn't know I even could ask. There were some missteps in our (laughs) first experience. And I talk about that. I talk about the things that could have been done differently from us and from the professionals around us. But also just that learning curve of understanding how different these experiences are for people, it really brought up a lot for me in terms of realizing I'm a white woman. We were pretty much middle class at that point. My husband had a decent job. We had decent health care. We had people around us who were treating us um, with compassion. My privilege is very, very different than what some people who are having stillbirths experience. There's a woman um, named uh, Teodoro del Carmen Vasquez in Peru who was tried as a criminal after she suffered a stillbirth, and she was sentenced to 30 years for aggravated homicide. There's another woman named Latisse Fisher in Mississippi who just last week went to trial uh, facing second-degree murder charges after the stillbirth of her child. This was a blind spot for me as a white, privileged woman initially. I did not realize there was this statistical pattern of women of color being criminalized for stillbirth. So not just having the grief experience that we were having, but additionally having the grief experiences that come from dealing with that kind of criminalization. If I was going to offer grief support and be present for women in those situations, my experience was very narrow. And I really had to understand a lot of other things that were surrounding and affecting and shaping, you know, the grief experience to to be present for people. 
um, for what's actually happening for them. So with that expanded knowledge of what tangibly would change? You know, um, some of it is a mindset change. (laughs) Uh, And some of it is a practical change. For me, the mindset change was coming out of uh, sort of the privilege I had in terms of education. I was coming at things with this idea that you could become an expert. You could learn enough to know everything you needed to know. And you're the expert in the space and you can set up and, you know, you bring people together to have whatever experiences they have. I quickly realized that I don't know. Mm. I, I cannot know pretty much anything about the person sitting in front of me. By staying in the I don't know space, then I can be curious and I can ask a lot of questions. On the practical level, I'm asking questions of the people who show up in front of me about what's happening for them and staying as curious as possible uh, rather than being an expert in the space. I have have really good skills at setting up space to be creative and for people to explore, but I there there's no model. <laughs> there are no stages. There are no tasks. There are no list of questions that I can take in that is going to address the person who shows up in front of me. That was a big change for me. I've been sitting a little with the idea of how we, whether through our own personal grief experiences or our experiences of facilitating groups or working with people individually who have had grief, we absorb certain themes or concepts and we bring those with us into our next interaction. And yet, how do we use those to inform open, curious questions rather than limiting directed questions? Yeah. There's a great book from Kimberly Aquaviva. She wrote this book called LGBTQ Inclusive Hospice and Palliative Care. And in the beginning of that book, she really talks about the difference between universal approaches versus inclusive approaches. By universal, you mean like kind of an across the board, we offer this thing to everyone? Yes, exactly. In institutional settings, there's this idea that, well, if we come up with something that's the same for everybody, everybody's equal, we're we're creating equal equality. The problem is, is that if you offer the same thing (laughs) to every person sitting in front of you, it doesn't include them. What Kimberly is talking about in the beginning of the book is using this approach of um, being inclusive instead of universal, instead of taking a universal model and applying it to everyone who shows up for care. Um, how do we create inclusive spaces that say what's happening here and what needs are there to be met or where where is the gap in service happening for this person or this family? It can seem just like semantics, you know, and, and wordplay, but that was a big shift for me, too, in reading her book, thinking about that change from uh, universal to inclusive. There's a great uh, drawing illustration I've seen in uh, different social justice circles uh, where there's, you know, three people kind of looking over a fence at a ball game. One of the people is really tall. They're up over the fence and they can see the game. The other person's sort of like right at the fence line and the other person's very, very short and can't see anything. And so a universal approach would be give everybody the same box to stand on. Well, now the guy who could see over the fence originally anyway is just that much taller, right? The person at the eye line can see over now. Um, the person who is very, very short still can't see over the fence. The box isn't tall enough for them. So the sort of progression of this illustration is that if you take the box uh, from the very tall person, he doesn't need it anyway, and offer two boxes to the person who's very, very short, now they can see over too. But what's interesting about 
this graphic is that I've seen artists and activists um, continue to evolve this drawing to eventually, you know, uh, the fence is gone. And then there's another one where uh, they're all in team uniforms and they're actually further up in the ballgame, actually on the team playing <laughs> the game. Rather than trying to figure out how to negotiate the barrier, looking at removing the barrier. Exactly. Inclusive. How, how do we get everyone on the team? It's a, it's a fascinating metaphor, you know, for that kind of grief access, access to grief support. And Yeah, I'm wondering, do you have an example of maybe through your own work or work that you've heard about of where grief support has, you know, identify, sometimes the step is just to identify what the barrier is, and then to either offer varying levels of support for their for equity, or to go ahead and remove that barrier. One I can think of pretty quickly is um, access to crisis lines. So, you know, there are a lot of suicide um, crisis lines. And a lot of times as professionals, we offer those to our clients. I'm as a professional, I can't be available 24 seven. Um, and so I want people I'm working with to know if they find themselves in a moment of crisis, they have, you know, a place they can call and, and connect with someone. There are lots of different sort of gaps in service that come up around crisis lines, though. If a crisis line is going to address a mental health crisis someone's happening by calling the police, that's maybe not going to provide the best service needed for the person on the other end of the phone. And so how do we look at alternatives to calling the police? especially when there's a mental health crisis and when a, a crisis line has been engaged. And then also uh, crisis lines involve having to invoke your speaking voice. I've worked with a number of people who the grief experience they're having in that moment is so overwhelming, they simply cannot use their voice. So giving them a phone number to call, they don't have the speaking voice to access that particular resource. So of course, now we see popping up fabulously, crisis text lines. Now you can text and you're actually chatting with um, the person on the other end of the crisis support line, which is great. You don't have to use that speaking voice. And then the third kind of thing I see around crisis lines is um, a lot of times they're set up around suicide prevention, right? And people will feel like, well, I'm not suicidal. I'm having a, a crisis, emotional crisis in this moment, but I'm not suicidal. That's not for me. And so we see some things popping up um, called warm lines. And warm lines, there's a lot of state facilities that offer warm lines. They can be a little bit limited in that sometimes if it's coming through a state institution, they can have business hours, nine to five, Monday through Friday, which isn't always helpful. <laughs> Hard to schedule a crisis sometimes. Exactly. But they do exist and they exist in lots of different forms. So, so that's been an interesting thing to see personally, but also as a professional watching how the field is evolving to address gaps in service that we're identifying along the way. Yeah. And that idea that in grief, sometimes we can get so overwhelmed and it can be so hard to reach out and ask for help for a lot of folks that the text is more accessible or feels less threatening or challenging than actually dialing the phone and having to negotiate someone else's voice on the other end. Yes, absolutely. I will link to all of these options in our show notes too. Switching topics a little, the other thing I was really struck by on your website was the uh, the writing that you do around self-care sustenance and that being such a vital, necessary component for people who are in grief and people who are professionals supporting people in grief. And there's a ton written about self-care. How do you conceive of it and how might that be a little different than other ways we've talked about it or thought about it? Yeah. You know, again, I think... In the same ways that the definitions of grief 
kind of expanded for me with experience and the definitions of creativity expanded for me with experience to be not just art making, but heart making the way I kind of talk about that. In the same way, the definitions of self-care really broke open for me over time and experience. And so I started calling it self-care sustenance um, because I really wanted to be talking about what nourishes us. There's a lot of self-care about taking bubble baths and stuff. I have nothing against bubble baths. I love them. (laughs) But self-care is so much more than that. And I felt like if we started asking creative and curious questions about what's nourishing for us or what we need or what is malnourished, that we could get, we could go a little deeper in those self-care conversations. And then part of what happened is when you uh, look through uh, social justice writings and offerings, there's a lot of conversation around self-care being linked to community care and community care being linked to self-care. And so all of this really intrigued me because, you know, what I'm seeing with people who are having grief experiences, of course, is that the most resilient spaces come up for people when they connect, when they have community uh, connections around them that are feeding them. And so I started writing about self-care sustenance, about the ways that it's more than bubble baths and (laughs) what does it mean to self-care and be linked in that concept to community care. For instance, uh, there's an article linked on my website under that self-care sustenance section uh, from a disability activist. I deal with chronic illness uh, issues myself, and so there's some level of disability at times. And she really wrote about those times where she literally, because of what's happening uh, with her disability, cannot take care of herself. Like she could not actually do self-care by herself. (laughs) And her self-care depends on community. And I thought, oh, wow, (laughs) that's really true. And not just for the issues I have with chronic illness, but for the ways I've had grief experiences too. It's very tied to community and and the access I have. And so I just started writing about this as a way in this way so that we could start thinking about talking with people, not just like, here's a list of how to self-care, take a bubble bath, take a walk, do a meditation, but to actually be asking them what is nourishing them, what is not nourishing them, what is malnourished, where do they need help? Meditation's great. But if it's not nourishing you, then it's not really a part of self-care. It's just adding suffering at that point if it's not truly nourishing for you. As you're talking, I'm thinking about oftentimes self-care gets framed as something you do for yourself. And then the silent part of that sentence is by yourself. And it seems like you're really expanding that definition to say, what are the times or the places where you're asking for help for yourself? Yes. And really looking again at that full context, just like we talked about the big book of grief rules. What's the big book of self-care rules, (laughs) right? What's working and what's not working? Because again, our self-care is framed by our access, our ability, our race, our class, our education, our economic stance, our geographic location. You know, it's not happening in a vacuum. And I think a lot of shame can crop up for people. Shame on top of grief already being difficult. (laughs) I'm doing grief wrong and I'm also doing my self-care wrong. 
exactly. Why can't I do this by myself? I should be able to. I just had a flash. I don't know if you've seen any of those. They've kind of popped up on the internet, but I think there's also a book of the word per state or the like favorite food per state. And I would love to see a map of what's the approved self-care strategy for each state, thinking about that geographic <laughs> location and like where you were raised and how you think of self-care. Is it something you do as a group? Is it something you do individually? Yeah. I, I mean, it makes the, the connections we have with each other, connection to care, connection to support, you know, all of those connections make a difference. They just do. I haven't come across anyone able to do it in a vacuum, <laughs> you know. As much as we might try really hard to do that. And speaking of connections, Kara, what what are the best ways for listeners to connect with you and the work that you're doing? Sure. Uh, so anyone who's having a personal grief experience, I'm doing the support and the resources and the books and things through griefandcreativity.com. And then on the professional side, the continuing education piece, I actually do that with a team of people. Um, and all of that work is happening through creativegriefstudio.com. Great. Well, I spent a little time exploring both of those sites. And now I want to do all those things with you. <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> Thank you. And I, I just want to appreciate, you know, taking time to talk with me today and have this conversation and sort of, I know you've talked a lot about how we expand our definitions of grief and expand our definition of what does it mean to provide grief support in a really aware way. So thank you for that. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me today, Jenna. It was great. And listeners, thanks for tuning in. If you want to hear any of our past episodes of Grief Out Loud, you can find us at dougy.org or Stitcher, Apple Podcast, any other platform that's out there that you're using to get your podcasts. If you have an idea for a topic, something you want to hear us talk about, send us an email at help at dougy.org. Thanks for listening. Hope you'll join us again next time. Thanks for listening.